Welcome to Stand Alone. I'm Sabrina Lloyd, founder and CEO of Lloyd Agencies, a multi-million dollar company that ranks as one of the most successful in the insurance industry. My passion is empowering people to become the leaders that they were meant to be. With each episode, I'll teach you how to go from ordinary to extraordinary, how to think like no one else, how to stand alone. It's time we create massive success for ourselves. Welcome everyone. Well, today we have the very rare special honor and privilege of having Rabbi Lappin with us today. Rabbi, you are not only America's rabbi, you are my rabbi. You know, in 2008, um, I found you on television and I said, wow, you know, I I really want to dig into this and learn more. And I picked up your book, you know, Thou Shall Prosper, 10 Commandments of Making Money. And what's amazing about my book is that there was notes in there from so long ago. So I reread your book and I'm like, wow, I'm glad this meeting happened because I feel like the next 13 years are going to be that much better compounding with my experience. But I just want to say, you know, what an amazing life that you have lived um, with great honor, but not only that, but sharing the wisdom of the Jewish culture to everyone so that we could learn, we could get better because we need this. And I want to say now more than ever. So I just want to commend you. I know you're an avid boater, which I love because it means you navigate waters, which is really what business is. Sometimes it's calm, sometimes it's rough. But, you know, I really want to dive into your great masterpiece today. And I want for everyone to get encouraged about why business is a great thing, why being prosperous is a blessing. And, you know, I don't, I, I really am just so happy to have you in your book to kick this off. You talk about this experience when you are fishing for salmon and you have a guide with you. And I love this because you're so confident, you're so sure, but it's a reminder of why we have to have guides in our life, why everyone needs a rabbi. And so, you know, the, in that moment where you are so confident, the guide tells you, uh, let it go, you're, you're finished and you fought against it, but then, you know, fate took over. If you could share with us you know, why it's so incredibly important to be mentored with wisdom in today's world, because there's so much that we are bombarded with that is very surface information, but there is no doubt that the, the Jewish culture is disproportionately wealthy compared to any other culture in human history. So we stand to learn from this. Why do we need to take the time to seek out wisdom today, Rabbi? Well, um, the, the, the main reason is that we human beings are created with certain intuitive understandings. And so uh, from infancy, we grow and we begin to understand the difference between light and dark. You know, so even, even a little child um, might 
go to sleep more easily if there's a night light on. We, we can tell the difference between day and night, night, light and dark. We very quickly learn the difference between light and heavy. Uh, you know, a, a piece of paper, easy to pick up, uh, a, a big piece of wood, harder to pick up. All of that stuff comes intuitively to us. As a matter of fact, um, even something as slightly abstract as height and the fear of height, again, interesting, if uh, little kids are, are let walk on a surface, which then turns into plexiglass, and beneath their feet, there's a big drop. Even, even small babies crawling uh, get a little uneasy about that. So, I mean, we, we are amazing mechanisms. Uh, we, we gain an understanding of the world very quickly. However, only physical things, not spiritual things. And you already know, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm so humbled by how much attention you've, you've paid to that book. And I'm so happy to know that it's paid off and it's worked out well for you. But um, not everybody watching us now or listening to us now knows that when I say spiritual, I'm not wearing my rabbi hat. I'm wearing my engineering hat. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by physical and spiritual is the difference between things that can be measured in a laboratory and things that cannot. So this has nothing, when I say spiritual, don't think God, piety, religion, goodness, virtue. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. So when I say spiritual, I mean literally things that do not respond to a laboratory measurement. So for instance, uh, take things like persistence, integrity, courage, optimism. By the way, all the things you want from somebody you're hiring. Yes. Right? I, I don't care if the person I'm hiring is man or woman or, or um, you know, with, with lots of hair or bald or, or black or white or any color. It doesn't matter, you know, unless I'm looking to hire a swimsuit model. But other than that, I'm interested only in spiritual characteristics. And although many uh, psychological evaluation companies have struggled to try and come up with a lab test which would allow employers to tell in advance whether the person they are hiring is a cheerful person. You know what? There is no company that is so big that they can afford to have a miserable person on staff because miserable people find a need to start epidemics of misery and they spread it. And the fact is that if any company succeeded in coming up with a test that could be administered to new recruits in a company and allow a company to know in advance whether the person they're hiring is a person of integrity and optimism and resilience and resourcefulness, um, such a company would be literally on the Dow Jones index very quickly. It would be so valuable. It's not going to happen. It cannot happen because the way the good Lord created the world is you cannot measure spiritual phenomenon. And that's part of why it is that little kids and even big kids and big adults do not have an intuitive sense of spiritual phenomena, only physical phenomena. So to answer your question of why we all need mentors, why we all need a teacher is essentially uh, to be taught how the world really works because the way the world really works is not only on physical phenomena, it's spiritual phenomena. 
I know people who drive across town to buy gasoline that's four cents a gallon cheaper, and they'll use, you know, half a 50 or 70 cents of, of gas just doing that. And you say, hey, on a physical perspective, this doesn't make sense. And the person says, look, Rabbi Lappin, you of all people should know that sometimes we take decisions based on spiritual reasons, not on physical reasons. And so when you interact with other people, which is what business and making money is all about, uh, you, you really do need to be able to evaluate the spiritual aspect as well, because you don't know that intuitively. Nobody does. And uh, later, when you discover that money, shockingly, is actually a spiritual phenomenon, well, then it becomes doubly important to understand how the world really works. I love this. And I want to I dive into uh, understanding why it's so great to have money. You know, it's not a bad thing. But if we do have those feelings rising up on us, especially for people that are younger being raised now, you know, what they have to do to correct those behaviors. But I really want to dive into this. Um, when you talk about the physical and the spiritual, you said something in your book that's so powerful. You talked about uh, the Lord's language and how if there isn't a word for something, then it means that it may not exist. And you gave the example of the word face. And I love this because in business, you know, just like, uh, the waters, you have to navigate with people's personalities. And as we talk, we'll talk about how important people are in business, but you have to really know that there's different faces to people, right? Because the word faces does exist. Can you explain this to us? So as we go into this duality, which I want to like uh, theme everything here, because we do have a dual nature to us. And so if you could explain to our audience, what does it mean to know someone's faces rather than just their face? Um, well, it's, it's, it's particularly challenging, as you say, because uh, in our cultural lexicon, we've all been trained to distrust somebody who is two-faced. Right. This is so good. And so we uh, automatically try and understand what a person's face is revealing. And this is one of the reasons that um, um, years ago, I found myself speaking at a financial conference in Mexico. And one of the other speakers was the famous billionaire, the late John Templeton, wonderful man. Mm -hmm. And um, we were sitting, there, there were no people talking with us. The two of us were sitting in the lobby one afternoon in between events, just chatting. And I said to him, Sir John, what is the most uh, surprisingly profitable investment you ever made? He said, well, I'm not sure I understand exactly what you mean, but I think this might be interesting. He said, uh, as soon as the stock markets opened after the terrorist attacks of September the 11th, 2001, I loaded up on airline stocks. Obviously, the bottom dropped out of the value of those stocks because people were saying, will airplanes ever fly again? Will people ever be willing to get on a plane again? And so I said, so what were you thinking? And he laughed. He said, Rabbi Lappin, I don't have to tell you, you know exactly what I was thinking. And I said, well, I think what you were thinking is that uh, no matter how long the world lasts, as long as there are human beings on this planet, they will need to do business in order to eat, ultimately to eat. And to do business, you ultimately have to look into somebody else's eyes face to face 
And so people may stop traveling for pleasure. They may stop traveling for tourism. They will never stop traveling for business reasons. And he laughed in delight and he said, of course, and I profited mightily from that purchase. So we, we do like sitting face to face with somebody we're doing business with. <clears throat> even on a smaller matter, although we are all accustomed to making our purchases online today, the fact remains that when you have, for one reason or another, an in-brick-and-mortar shop experience, and it's a pleasant experience, uh, you walk out elated and you say, you know what, I really miss doing that. Yes. And so, um, so one of the things that uh, ancient Jewish wisdom teaches is that nobody has only one face, and neither should they. Um, you know, my, uh, my little kid should not see the same face that my bank manager sees, and the other way around. Um, my wife sees one face of me. Uh, any other woman I'm talking to see a totally different face. I have many faces. I'm not just two-faced. I'm about five or six, seven-faced, maybe. Um, because you have to wear the right face for the right occasion in exactly the same way you have to wear the right clothing for the right occasion. And so for somebody whose face is among friends and family is, is comedic and, and humorous and funny, um, makes a dreadful mistake if he attends a funeral and doesn't know how to put on a different face. Correct. And so in the, uh, the other way around is that in reading people, and establishing relationships, which are fundamental to creating money, uh, it's important to be able to read multi-faces of a person and watch how the faces even change as the relationship deepens and matures and enriches. I love this. You know, the the whys uh, can save us time, right? So when we listen to your words of wisdom, what it really allows us to do and why we have to practice this, not just learn it. And you talk about this, this learn, understand and practice. So it becomes a part of us. You know, as we, as we go into the first commandment of, of making money, which everyone needs to be taught this from the youngest age possible, my husband and I, we have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Two and I'm yesterday, I was That's reading out loud to them. I was saying, you are going to, you're going to understand this stuff at a different level. When you talk about, you know, the two ideas of the, of the Jewish culture, you talk about sacrifice, uh, the present pleasures for future benefits. And then number two, respect the value of education. You know, I, I always say to my team, like, be careful where you get your education from, right? Because when you go into the first commandment, where it says that you must believe in the dignity and the morality of business, if our education is coming from a different source that doesn't line up with that, you know, belief and that education, you know, what will happen to us? Will we be able to prosper or will we be completely misaligned and then be struggling unnecessarily? Why do we have to educate ourselves in the things that are unchangeable, which is commandment number six, right? There are things that change, but there are things that you have to hold steadfast that are unchanging. And it's unchanging that you have to believe in the dignity and the morality of business. 
No, no, that's absolutely right. And, um, and, you know, people who are into sports and athletics know this and understand this. When, when um, athletes reach the Olympic level of performance, at that point, nobody wins or loses because their bodies are not good enough or their training isn't good enough. Uh, they win and lose strictly on the basis of spiritual and mental factors, right. determination, ability to absorb pain, confidence and optimism. And we even see, you know, every now and then an athlete drops out of competition, not by having been beaten, but just by losing the will to compete. And uh, something like that happened fairly recently at the, at the Tokyo Olympics as well. Uh, and she rejoined the Olympics a few days later. But for a certain period of time, she was incapable of competing. Nothing had happened to her body at all. Right. It was all spiritual. It was all internal. And, uh, and so it becomes really, really important to understand that the natural instinct relying and depending only on those qualities that are innate to us, learning nothing from mentors, learning nothing from ancient Jewish wisdom. Um, it is perfectly natural and perfectly normal to assume that making money is, is immoral. Why? Now, why is that? Mm -hmm. Well, again, so much depends on understanding the difference between spiritual and physical. Let's say, for instance, a saxophone is a physical object. I can measure it in a lab. I can measure its length. I can measure its weight. I can even measure the metal it's made of. Uh, I can measure the tone it produces on an oscilloscope. I can do all of that because the saxophone is a physical object. Now, how about a tune? A tune is spiritual. Its reality occurs only inside our heads and our hearts. Outside of our ears, a tune is nothing more than vibrating air molecules. And it only turns into something that creates joy within us or can reproduce sadness within us or can build our, our willingness to march off to war. Music is purely spiritual. Now, here is the key thing about physical and spiritual. A physical object, remember, I'm answering your question of why is it so natural and normal for people to assume that making money is immoral. Mm -hmm. And it's widespread. It's a widespread belief, by the way, even among many religious people who misunderstand this. And so people automatically associate poverty with virtue. And they're predisposed to assume that people with a lot of money must be evil. Correct. And what's going on here is, again, the assumption that money is physical, not spiritual. Now, bear with me. If money is physical, well, then it subscribes to one of the basic laws of physics, and that is any object can only be in one place at a time. Right. And so if the saxophone is sitting in front of me on the table and then I turn around to get some coffee, when I turn back, I have no saxophone in front of me, but it's now in front of you. 
you know, I might say to you, hey, would you please give me back my saxophone? Because you took it. But if we're sitting at a table and you teach me a song and I'm as delighted as could be and I walk away humming the song you taught me, you don't say to me, hey, Rabbi Lappin, where are you going? Give me back my tune because I never took anything away from you. The fact is, when you impart something spiritual to me, you make the world a more musical place and it hasn't cost you anything at all. And so um, a spiritual object can be in two places at the same time. A physical object, only one place at a time. If money is physical, then every time I get $10, there's got to be, you know, 10 people out there who are missing a dollar or two people who are missing $5 because I took it. And that's people who think you take money, you don't make money. But making money is exactly the right uh, word because when two human people, when human beings serve one another, money is brought into existence. Now, it's still up to the Federal Reserve to print enough currency to match the, the service I did for you. But they will do that. Otherwise, the currency will deflate. So they'll have to do it. The danger is they print too much for their own purposes. That's a different topic. But as soon as you understand that money is spiritual, then you understand that when I make money, I haven't taken anything away from anybody because provided I did not use a gun or a knife or provided I didn't use the powers of the Internal Revenue Service of the United States government, the only way I got your money was not by force, but only with your willing compliance. You gave it to me because I gave you something of greater value. And that's something that people do not, you don't get born understanding this about money. Right. And so naturally people devolve towards assuming that anyone who has money must have taken it from other people and therefore is not a good person. Yes. And you give a great analogy in the book where, you know, if a plane goes down, you know, everyone will start to say like, well, what caused the plane to go down? And you say, it's simple, it's gravity, right? And then you you tie that into poverty because so much of the world lives in poverty. Yes. America's poverty, it's all relative. It's, you know, someone else's wealth in a different country. But you say these powerful words that I really want for people to understand because you say poverty is normal. And for you to move from what is normal, where wealth isn't necessarily normal, you have to change who you are. And you give this equation where you say more money equals the new you minus the old you. Yes. And if you could elaborate on that for people to understand that it makes perfect sense for you to think like, I only have because someone else is missing it. But yes, that's, that's right. True, right. And then if you can understand that, you know, poverty is normal. It's normal around the world. But then it doesn't mean it's noble. It means it's it's normal. 
But why do we have to get rid of the old us to become the new us so that we can get more money? Yes. Well, <coughs> you know, we're, we really are talking uh, business, economics and finance here today. We're not talking religion. So I'm reluctant to use the phrase reborn. But you have to be. You're you're a hundred percent correct. Yeah, but they're really and and this is what I'll I'll try and uh, help our audience understand. Although, if I may say, uh, you're doing an awfully good job all by yourself. You really are. So um, no, it's only it's only because I had help. <laughs> well, you know, when when you introduced me, you said I was America's rabbi and that I was your rabbi. Yes, you are. I, I cannot adequately describe to you how much more important to me the second one is than the first one. Okay. <laughs> because the first one, America's rabbi, that's just a marketing slogan. You know, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. You know, there are a bunch of people in America who, who, who think I'm there. Okay, fine. But that I'm your rabbi is real. And that, that I just want to say this. A lot of people come up to me and they wonder like how I was able to become so successful so quickly. And the truth is it wasn't quickly, but I always carried wisdom with me. And when I made decisions, you know, actually in school, uh, I studied world religion. I studied to be a doctor, but I wanted to learn the world religions. And my favorite course was on Judaism. And I learned about Moses, Maimonides. I learned about all those great books. And when I got into the business world, it's, it's funny because this stuff starts to apply itself and then you act differently than everyone else. The, I, I produced a new me. So I, I love that you're saying this rebirth and reborn. Yes, you, you did reborn yourself. Yes, I did. You have to. And, uh, and it's perfectly natural and perfectly logical. Um, you know, when you think about it today, um, really, the whole world should be equally wealthy because today capital knows no boundaries. I mean, right. we don't even have to look at the remarkable phenomenon of cryptocurrency in the form of Bitcoin, its most famous example. We don't even have to think of that, but we just think of, of PayPal and Vimeo and Zello and all, uh, not Vimeo, Zello and, and, um, and, and all the other different ways to send money around the world Capital can go anywhere today. There's no boundaries. And information through the internet goes anywhere. There's no boundaries. Well, capital and information are fundamental to producing wealth. So why is Bangladesh not as wealthy as the state of Kansas? The capital can go anywhere. The knowledge goes anywhere. And the answer has to be the spiritual factors. Sometimes we can call them cultural factors. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing. These are unmeasurable qualities that are found among a group of people, right? Uh, you and your husband are in the early stages of building a family culture in your family. But if, if you keep doing everything right, eventually one, one day, a long way into the future, there's going to be a picture of you and your husband surrounded by an, a number of children and surrounded by grandchildren. And people will say, you know, yeah, that's amazing. You've got a family like that. And they'll say, well, you know, what's the secret? Well, the secret is you built a family culture. You had 
in other words, family wasn't just biology because biology is not enough to keep generations of family together. Only the spiritual qualities are, and that's what we call culture. And so you build a family culture, a business, a business. The minute a founder of a business hires his or her first employee, the necessity of creating a business culture becomes apparent. Because a business culture is what allows you eventually to let that employee make independent decisions. Correct. Because as long as that employee has to check back with you on every single thing, you're limiting your growth dramatically. So all of these things are the spiritual factors. And one has to remember that um, for any, and what I'm saying now is true for any decent human being, any, almost anybody listening is in your audience. You cannot ever succeed at anything that deep in your heart you consider to be morally reprehensible. I was once on a TV show with a, with a very successful pornographer, made a lot of money selling pornography. And... Um, and I said, uh, so, so tell me, you know, how do you think of yourself? Like, you know, in the quiet hours of the night, and you, th what are you exactly? I'm sure you don't say to yourself, I am a pornographer. What do you, what do you say? He said, well, uh, I really think of myself as a um, First Amendment hero. I actually um, uh, help people overcome their, uh, their restrictions and censorious habits of the uh, puritanical past, you know? And so I said, well, that's really interesting. Uh, so he, all along, you really are somebody whose statue belongs next to the Jefferson Monument on the Mall in Washington, D.C. And all along, I've thought of you as a depraved degenerate who pervades disgusting to the to the uh, to the d dismayed and at that point um he told me to do something which was very rude and quite impossible anyway so uh it, it sort of turned out to be a, a very revealing conversation that even the pornographer has to persuade himself that he's doing something hugely valuable and important and and that is true as long as deep down you feel uncomfortable about making money, that deep down you have a, a, a deep moral reservation that making money is must mean you're taking things away from other people, you will never succeed. And the proof that you have caught this dreadful disease is if you have trouble telling people what your price is. Good. Right. I mean, we, we once had a babysitter. She was wonderful. And uh, the first time we came home, everything was fantastic. You know, it, it was it was really good. I said, how much do uh, I owe you? And we'd been gone for about two and a half, three hours. And uh, she said, would forty five dollars be too much? Would it be OK? Forty five dollars is fifteen dollars an hour. So I said, no, I, I can't pay you that. And she got very shocked and she said, well, how about would $10 an hour be okay? And I said, no, you're going in the wrong direction. Uh, I want to pay you $20 an hour. And she said, I don't understand. And I said, because next time I phone that we need a babysitter, 
I want you to drop everything and come work for us again. And, you know, she was so puzzled because she had been embarrassed to tell me what her price was. Well, that meant that she had not yet been taught that making money is not taking money. Making right. money is serving other people. As long as you're not pointing a gun at them, they are really happy to give you the money. Yes. This is um, for everyone to really internalize this and then to, to check their behaviors and how they, you know, behave. Yes. I think, you know, this brings me to another thing where you talk about the self-respect and the esteem of others versus in today's world where we're so concerned and wrapped up in our self-esteem. And, you know, for you to really start to come to terms with, it isn't about you. It is about the people that you are working with, the people that you are serving, your community. This is really where the prosperity comes from. And so if you could explain to people why you don't have to worry about your self-esteem as much as you have to worry about your self-respect and the yes. of others. Yeah, well, um, objective measurements are always more important than subjective measurements. Yes, why? Explain um, that. <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, I, just, um, I just published on our website um, a new article, I call them thought tools. And this new thought tool um, it, it has something to do with um, when it is best to say to somebody, I think, and when it's best to say, I feel. So if somebody says to me, <clears throat> um, I feel that what you just said was offensive, my response to that is tough luck. I'm not responsible for your feelings. Now, if you said, I think you were offensive, then my response is very different. My response is, oh, really? Let's find out. If I was offensive, I'll apologize. If I wasn't, then you have to uh, understand that this was not offensive. But feeling and thinking are two completely different things. And so, and so, uh, pardon me. And so, uh, a subjective measurement is just not all that useful. Now, if I'm in a negotiation, that's very different. I might say, I'd say, I feel I'm being underpaid much better than I think I'm being underpaid. Because if I say I feel, well, nobody can argue with my feeling. Yes. But if somebody, if, if an employee comes to me, or sometimes it happens, a public school teacher says to me, uh, I'm being underpaid. And my response is always, that is terrible. Shall I tell you what to do? And they said, yeah, please. I said, quit. Immediately and go and get a job where you'll be paid what you think you're worth. And sometimes they're honest enough to say to me, well, I don't know of any such job that'll be paying me that amount of money, which on a per hour basis is really good, along with pensions and benefits I can't get anywhere else. Uh, I say, well, then you're not being underpaid. Payment is a private deal between 
the hirer and the hired. But if you say, I feel I'm underpaid, then we, we should talk about that because maybe I can't pay you any more in money, but maybe I can change the way you feel. Maybe I can give you a better office. I don't know if that'll work for you, but if it's a feeling, we can work more easily with it. If you say, I think I'm being underpaid, then I will immediately pull out proof from other, industry, from other companies in the same industry and other employees that, with your level of experience and skill. And I'll say, no, on the contrary, you're actually being paid 11% above average for your position. So think and feel are the difference between objective and uh, subjective. And it's really important to be able to understand the difference. Um, Self-esteem is subjective. Sometime, by the way, you know who has the highest self-esteem among all the demographics in America? Convicted murderers. Yes. Yeah, they do. Well, when you think about it, it takes considerable self-esteem to kill somebody who irritates you. Uh, but self-respect is more objective. Self-respect isn't how you feel about yourself. It's how the world feels about you based on your objective achievements and accomplishments. And it's very, very different. Don't be fooled by self-esteem hucksters. Yeah. So when we talk about this, like rolled into being, you know, prosperous, but then it comes back to education, right? Do you feel as a society, we put too much emphasis as we raise our children to be like, I need you to feel like you could do anything and I need to build your self-esteem up when really that is not what we should be doing. Cause how is that working for, and I don't want to say us, I don't do that, but I, I'm, I know when I'm in the presence of someone who was raised that way, you know, and then just understanding that when you come into a workforce, you have to work with people and how they view you, how they accept you. Does it matter? It matters hugely, of course, because making money is always a function of interacting with people who know you, who like you and who trust you. That's it. People who know you, like you and trust you. And this is one of the reasons that uh, in Jewish tradition, people's last names used to indicate what they did. It was trans the Jewish names are usually occupations because that's like walking around with a great big business card stuck to your forehead. It's wonderful. Yes. You're immediately telling people how you can serve them, which is very important. So, um, uh, uh, yeah, know, knowing people. And sometimes people say to me, well, I'm just not a people person. You know, I tend to not be an extrovert. I'm an introvert and I'm, I'm happy by myself. Well, that's a problem. You know, that's like somebody, it's like an adolescent whose face looks like the surface of the moon and who spends a, a small country's GDP on medications to cure his acne. And instead he stops and says, you know what? I'm just a pimply kid. That's all there is to it. I accept it. That's who I am. No, nobody does that. And so to say I'm an introvert, I don't mix. You don't do that. There's something wrong with you. Yes. Just the fact that you accept it <laughs> means you're sick. It doesn't mean that it's wonderful. You accept yourself the way you are. Fix yourself. Yeah. You've got to turn yourself into, you don't have to be the life and soul of the party, but you have to be somebody 
who knows how to interact with other people and enjoys other people, because otherwise you're not going. And this is true of every single economic transaction, whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you're an employee, whether you are a successful person looking to hire people or whether you're looking for your first job. In all of these cases, understanding how to interact with people is fundamental to the whole op operation. Very, very important. Yeah, and it ties back into that whole, uh, if you want to make more money, you got to get rid of the old you, right? Yes. Whatever you are, you have to be able to transform. It's not about tricks. It's not like learning little slate of hand tricks. Um, and that'll make you a, a better entrepreneur. It'll make you attract money if you want to use that, uh, that bad expression. Uh, that's not how it works. It's not tricks. It's authenticity. And if that means changing, then you have to change yourself. I, I love and this. one of the great things that distinguishes us from animals is we're capable of change. A cat or a camel or a kangaroo or a cow will be next year and in two years' time will still be a cat and a camel and a kangaroo and a cow. But you and I 10 years ago were quite different from the you and I today. Yes. You know, you're, you're talking about animals, and I love that you make a clear, you know, differentiation that we're not animals. We are way more special than that. Um, and that's the whole spiritual side coming into yeah. it. But you also give a great example for people. A lot of people follow me to learn how to become a better leader. Yes. And you give a great example of the lion and the bird, where you talk about the lion being an animal that's very deliberate, you know, that is in control versus a bird who's just kind of like reacting, you know, yes. around and you know, for, for us, I think everyone wants to be a leader. And I know in, in the Jewish, in the Lord's language, um, there is no word for leadership either, right? Gosh, you know, it's so wonderful doing an interview with somebody who's actually read the book. I can't tell you how often I end up doing an interview. And it's perfectly obvious in the first 20 seconds that the interviewer opened the book for the first time three minutes before we went on the air. Oh, boy, I wouldn't and, do that. Uh, it makes it very, very difficult. It makes it a grueling interview, whereas I'm finding it very stimulating talking to you and, and you bringing out what I hope is the best in me. Um, so my my compliments, you're, you're very good at what you do. Oh, thank you. And, you know, for 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 everyone to just understand that that's that's what leadership is. It's doing and being a certain way. Right. So the lion uh, why do we look to the lion as the leader, right? Yeah, because it's not the strongest animal or the biggest animal. That would be the tiger or the elephant. Uh, but what, what lions are very good at is they, um, they don't react or, or move in a way that appears to be non-deliberate. And so one of the things that uh, I teach my children is not to fidget. Yeah. Fidgeting radiates a sense of powerlessness. And so when you sit at the table, I mean, it happens with adults in meetings where they just, they can't stop moving their hands around and they pick up a pen, they put it down, they pick up their phone, they put it down, they, you know, pass it through their hair if they've got some. And um, it, it's a bad thing because it conveys lack of power. 
to be able to sit absolutely stationary has real value. And it's good training to give a child because you can't learn it. It's very hard to learn it as an adult. But that's partly the difference between a bird and a, and, and a lion. A bird's jerky and it's constantly reacting to what's going on around it and, and it's darting its head backwards and forwards and it's, you know, it's in constant movement. A lion just sits there impassively. And I grew up in Africa, so I've seen many, many lions in the wild. And, um, and you can even walk up to a lion as long as you're not threatening. And as long as that lion has eaten recently, it's probably not going to move. He evaluates you as a non-threat and he's not interested in you as food. Whereas most other animals will either growl or move away. The lion just looks at you and eventually you back off. That's leadership. Power. I, I love Real power. I love this. And then, you know, just being being deliberate with the movements that you make. So when deliberate they, is exactly the right word. That's right. Yeah. When they do make a move, okay, you know, there's a there's a leadership principle that when the real leader speaks, people listen, right? So you might think you're a leader, but if you don't have followers, you're not a leader. You that's know, exactly right. And so whether it's in business or in leading a family. Yes. Um, you know, wise parents learn very quickly. Don't react in anger. Something happens, your child does something, just count to 10, think it through. And then you decide how to act, but it's deliberate. Leadership is always deliberate. And uh, what's true for leading a family is also true for leading a business. I love this. You know, being um, doing well in business has helped me have a successful family. So I love your book because at the end, you say that business is life and life is business. And what you probably also realize is that as much as business has helped you build your family, building your family has also helped your business in a parallel way. Yes, I, I do see this because when you talk about prosperity, it isn't about what I'm building for myself, which I see so many people struggling with today. Like they want more stuff for themselves. But, you know, to, to, to tie this all so beautifully together, you give the story of the carob tree when, they're, when this person is planting the tree and it's not going to grow, it's not going to bear any fruit until 70 years later. You know, why is it so important that if we're really in business to serve other people, to really serve deeply into our family for generations to come? Because I love that you say that. You shouldn't be proud if you come from a poor upbringing. That means your parents were missing some information and it's That's your absolutely job. right. I, yeah. you know, I'm torn between laughing and crying when I hear politicians tumble over their feet in their eagerness to prove that they grew up poor as if that's virtuous, you know? Right. And then, you know, they almost make you believe like, well, I want to listen to you because you grew up poor. Like, yeah, me. right. <laughs> and and it's, it's really I've always been attracted to people that have wealth because that's who I want to learn from. Yes. And if you, if you were lucky enough to grow up in a solid, intact, wealthy family, how beautiful is that? Right. And then you've got, you have a huge head start. There's no question about it. There's no getting away from it. Yes. So, you know, leaving a legacy when people, this is a word that's thrown around a lot nowadays, but 
I want to talk about leaving a financial legacy to to making sure that you're building a foundation for your family and you're really like serving the generations that are not even there right now. Why do we have to engage in activities that we won't necessarily bear the direct fruits of? Why did that man plant that tree when he knew he would never get to reap the fruits that grow from it? Well, it's the sort of mirror image of retirement. Retiring means I've got enough, so I'm not going to serve you anymore, which is terrible. And, and working for things that may not become fruitful in your lifetime shows that it is the action that is more important than the, than the result. It's the journey more important than the destination. And so I have to run my business as if I'll be here forever. And that means I run uh, and I create an entirely different business from a kind of business that is locked into a very finite time frame. And I think you also act more ethically when you're doing it because it has to last, outlast you. Right. And this is one of the great benefits that children give you because it allows you to create in your mind the vision that there's an immortality to, to your enterprise. Yes, this is, this is great. You know, you, you gave some great advice. I watched a video of you and it was, I think a lot of people just need simple advice today because there's so much information out there, but you said, get a job, keep the job, get married, stay married. <laughs> and then in the middle, do exceedingly well at your job. Yeah. Deliver more than is expected. Yes. And, yeah. and I think it's, success is really not that hard. No, it isn't. Uh, to that, I would add one more thing, which is hard. And that is do what you should do at the time you should do it. Yes. Because we're always looking for the next thing. We're, yeah. we're moving way too fast today. And it's uh, hurting people that are underdeveloped. So, yeah, no, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, I have a question for you that has nothing to do with your book, but I want yeah. your wisdom on this. Why did God tell us not to eat from the tree of knowledge between good and evil? I grapple with this very great. Like when well, I, I'm an avid seeker of knowledge, but why did he not want us to eat from that tree? Well, first of all, he didn't give that uh, instruction to us. He only gave it to Adam. Okay. So you and I don't have to worry about it. Okay. And why he gave it to Adam was because, look, God's original plan um, didn't work out, right, several times. Plan, you know, plan A was Adam, but it didn't work out. So he went to plan B, which was Noah. Yes, that's right. You know, and then that didn't work out. So he went to plan C, which was Abraham. Yes. Um, so um, plan A was that um, good and evil should not be intermingled. And today it is. In the sense that um, uh, it is very difficult to think of an action that is 100% good. Let's say you, you give a poor person some money. Well, that seems pretty good. But wait a second. 
in some small but measurable way, you have just struck a blow at his ambition, his dignity, and his self-reliance. Um, you know, is, is killing a person bad? Yeah, it really is. What happens if the killer is a doctor who is trying to cure the person as well as he possibly could, but the operation was not a success? Well, now it's not so clear that that was bad. And so it is moral confusion uh, exists in almost every action today because of that eating of the fruit. It was a fatal action that condemned all of humanity to this uncertainty. And that's one of the reasons that we need an instruction book, a manufacturer's instruction manual called the Bible, uh, because if, you know, I, I, I tell people I have a podcast entitled this, I tell people all the time, for God's sake, stop trying to make the world a better place, please. <laughs> I love this. Because what you consider to be better may be hurting me. Wow. Just look after your own life. Stop trying to make my world better. It's really fine as it is. This is great. You know, Rabbi, where would someone go um, to find more about you? Well, not only can I answer that, but I will tell you this. For your audience, I will give a free, absolutely free download of an ebook called The Holistic You. Love it. And this book is perhaps the very most important first step on the path to family and prosperity. Uh, it explains in good detail how it is that the five key fundamental aspects of your life all interact with each other. You can't focus on only one and ignore the others. And so you go to a very easy website to find rabbidaniellappin.com. Yeah, we'll and then just look, in the look for the free download of the holistic you. Okay, great. We'll add it in the description. I just want to say thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for being a dedicated person who studied the Torah, who studied God's word, and then made it, you know, presented it to us in a language that we can really understand and absorb. Because for a lot of people today, you know, our education. We have the education system, which is not that, you know, they have agendas, but then we also have, you know, people being educated by YouTube videos, which is scary to me. Unless, uh, unless it's this video. No, totally. Because you have to look at the credentials of yeah, a person right. speaking to you. And so when I first met you in 2008, who would have known that your, your, your wisdom would be silently helping me navigate my waters of business and and have me land where I am today but well I'm, I couldn't be more delighted I'll just remind you that I wish it was my wisdom but it isn't it's ancient Jewish wisdom I happen to be blessed with fabulous teachers that imparted it to me in a way that makes it easy for me to bring it and make it accessible to you but uh, it's not really mine but uh, but I'm honored to be able to uh, convey it. So uh, please stay in touch. It's, it's really been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, and I'd love to do it again. So um, please let me know how things are going. God bless with your family and with your business. And um, I, I look forward to seeing great things. Thank you so much. God bless you also. 
Thanks for listening to Stand Alone. If you like what you hear, I'd love if you leave a five-star review. To keep the conversation going, you can find me at I am Sabrina Lloyd or at Lloyd Agencies on Facebook and Instagram.